Our scripture reading this morning, after taking a break for a couple of weeks, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark. Back in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. You can find that printed in your bulletins. ABC News aired a special Friday night. Uh, it was called The Girl Left Behind. I don't know if any of you saw this. I didn't see it. I actually was reading an article about it online. It's the story of Kayla Mueller. Uh, Kayla was a 25-year-old American humanitarian aid worker who was uh, taken hostage and eventually killed by ISIS. She was tortured. She was verbally abused. She was forced into slave labor, and she was raped repeatedly. Uh, Other hostages who were let go or who escaped said, though, that in the midst of all of that, Kayla never gave up hope. And that she always put the good of the other hostages even uh, ahead of her own. And that she even stood up to Jihadi John, who was one of her captors, and defended her Christian faith to him. At one point, she was paraded in front of other prisoners who were about to be released. And one of her captors says, oh, this is Kayla. And she has been held all by herself. And she is much stronger than you guys. And she's much smarter. She converted to Islam. And Kayla said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, At one point later in her captivity, she had the chance to try to escape with several young teenagers who had been taken captive And they were trying to persuade her to come. And she said, no, I can't go with you because I'm an American. And if an American leaves, they are certain to to do anything they can to try to find us again. It's better for you to go and try to escape alone. I'll stay here. I'll stay here. Where do you find the strength to do that? Where do you find the strength to do that? Jesus tells us uh, that we will face tribulation in this life. He tells us that we will have to take up our cross and follow him. But we never expect it to be quite like that. So so where did Kayla Mueller find the strength to live with hope and to live with others and to not give up her faith in Jesus to keep going? Where do we find the strength to endure with hope, to live for others, to trust Jesus in the hard places that he calls us at times To go through, Lord willing, none of us will experience what she had to go through there. But we will experience difficulty, times when we want to turn away from the path that Jesus is calling us to walk on, to take the easier path, to give up hope. Um, How do we endure? How do we endure and perhaps even endure with joy in the midst of sorrow? Well, let's, let's read this passage and we're going to think about that this morning. This is Mark. Chapter 9, beginning verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And we had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it, uh, that you would speak through me and even in spite of me if you need to do that. Uh, But I pray that you would speak and make Jesus known to us uh, and encourage us in that. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So what I want to talk about is what we need in order to endure. What we need in order to endure. And then secondly, how we get that. And then thirdly, what that really looks like. So what we need in order to endure, how we get that, and then what that really looks like. Uh, This passage comes on the heels of of Mark chapter 8, obviously. But the end of Mark chapter 8, we read where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die. And when Jesus told his disciples that, do y'all remember Peter's reaction? Peter's reaction was like, oh no, it it ain't going down like that, Jesus. This is not what what you're here to do. Peter was actually trying to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter at that point, get behind me, Satan. Not only am I going to die, but if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to deny yourself and you're going to have to be prepared to die yourself. Uh, If one of you were to come up to me and say, Justin, I want you to follow me. 
I'm heading to a cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise again. And you need to give up your own life and follow me. Give up this chase of the American dream that you've been on it and follow me. Now, if I didn't immediately slam the door in your face like you're one of these AT&T guys trying to sell me high-speed internet again, uh, not that that's happened, but, but, but if, I didn't, if I didn't just write you off immediately, uh, if I really respected you and, and thought, I, okay, let, let me listen to this, I might say, now tell me who you are again. Tell, tell me a little more about yourself because if I'm going to follow you to death, I need to know who this is that I'm really following. I'd like some reassurances about who you are. Well, read verse 2 again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That's like, like we read that word all the time. We're like, what, is, what does that mean? It, it means basically metamorphosed. Like he was just sort of transformed in front of them Uh, and then verse 3 and his clothes became radiant intensely white as as white as no one on earth could bleach them so this is the best way i can think about this imagine that clark kent has been leading you on a rescue mission to save somebody and he's done his best he can to kind of rally the troops and you respect him and you're like okay uh, Clark, I'm going to follow you. But in your mind, you're not really sure if mild-mannered Clark Kent is going to be able to get this job done. Is he really going to be up for the task of, of rescuing these people that we're going to rescue? And then suddenly, you know, the shirt comes open and, and you see the Superman ass. You're like, oh, that's who this is. This is the guy I'm following. Okay, I think I can go with this guy. You see him for the first time, maybe, for who he really is. That's something of what's happening with the apostles here, with the disciples here. They're seeing Jesus for who he really is. One writer put it this way, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. And they saw his glory. They They saw the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll just kind of sit with that for a moment. What, what these guys experienced and saw on that mountain. I, I think God in this moment is kind of throwing them a bone. Uh, he's giving them something for them to hold on to as they journey with him to the cross. That they'll be able to say, I don't, I don't get where this is going. I don't know where this is headed. But that's God's son. And I've seen his glory. And I'm going to hold on to that. Now obviously they didn't hold on to that perfectly. But John would later say, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father. Peter would later say that day, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what we saw. That's who we saw on that mountain. Uh, in the book of Malachi chapter 4, uh, Israel is they're talking about the coming day of the Lord. And, and, they're, and they're being prepared by being told, remember the law of my servant Moses. And then verse 5 of Malachi 4 reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that's who shows up, who appears here with Jesus on the mountain, saying all that the law was pointing to, all that Elijah and Moses and everything in the Old Testament was driving to, 
it's coming to a head here in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter is understandably a little unnerved by all this, doesn't know quite what to do, starts throwing up tents, asking if he could put up tents for the three men, and then, and then this cloud overshadows them. Now in the Old Testament, this cloud uh, was known as the Shekinah glory cloud. This was how God in the Old Testament would make his, his presence known to the people of Israel. This was the cloud in Exodus 33 uh, where God passed by Moses in the cloud as he covered him in the cleft of the rock. This is the cloud we read about in Exodus 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It had been 600 years at this point since the Shekinah glory cloud had appeared in Israel. And Peter and James and John get to stand in the midst of this glory cloud and experience the presence of God. And they're not disintegrated because they're with Jesus. Because they're with Jesus. And then they hear, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. I think the best way to describe what those guys experienced that day, besides being scared out of their minds, was, was worship. That they experienced worship. They got caught up for a moment in the glory of God. They experienced the love of the Father for the Son. They were, they were surrounded by the presence of God. They were covered, as it were, by His beauty and by His glory. And then everybody's gone. Except for Jesus still standing there. They've seen him for who he is. They've gotten a taste of his glory. They've gotten a taste of the love of God. And that's what they were going to need to sustain them on the way to the cross, on the way to Jerusalem. And I think that's what you and I need to sustain us uh, as we journey through the difficulties of life. We need this sense of the wonder and the awe and the glory and the love of God. When, when, when we go through tribulation, when we face trials, the thing that is there that will sustain us, that will sustain you and me, is not a barrel of facts about Jesus that we just kind of learn this, this, and this in Sunday school and we just kind of mentally check these things off. It's the fact that we have experienced worship. That we've seen something of who Jesus is and that has affected not just... Uh, not just our brains, but it's affected our hearts as well. That we've seen his worth in some way, finally. And we have a sense that this, this guy is worth following, even if I have to follow him to death. Where are the places you think we experience, besides obviously church, where are the places you, you feel like we would experience worship, something like worship in our culture today? I think one of the closest places... Uh, for better or for worse, are, are, are Saturday night college football games. All right? If you don't think those are a worse experience, you haven't been to one lately. Whether you're at Clemson or South Carolina or Auburn or LSU or, or wherever you are, Saturday night football in the South is, is a worship kind of event. And when is it at its most glorious? It's when you're winning. It's when you come from behind and win. It's when you're winning dramatically. And what do you do then to sustain yourself through the losing seasons if you're a fan of that team? 
you replay those glory moments in your head. You, you think about them over and over. The big plays, the dramatic wins, and you hope and you pray and you dream that you'll get to relive that moment. That it's going to come again. That the glory is going to return. But you're never entirely sure, are you? If it's ever going to be that good again. Uh, the other place I think we experience something of worship in our culture is in large uh, rock concerts. Last summer I took Emma, she and I went to see you 2 in concerts. She wanted to go. Um, I wanted to go really. I wanted her to see them. But I wanted to see them again because I never know. They're getting old. I never know when they're going to fade from the scene. Uh, and some people would say they're already fading, but I'm trying to hold on uh, to their coolness. But, but I, wanted, I wanted one last glimpse of their glory to sustain me. What if, what if there was glory in the universe big enough to sustain you not just through a losing football season? Not just through your favorite rock band riding into the sunset. What if there was glory in the universe big enough to sustain you through pain and suffering, through torture, through the loss of a loved one, through injustice? This passage says that there is. That there is that kind of glory at the heart of the universe in the triune God. And if, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus bearing the cross, we need to not just know facts about God, but we need to have fallen on our face in worship before Him. We need to taste something of His glory. We need to be wrapped up in His love. Well, how do I get that? All right? How do I, how do I get even just a taste of that? You know, if your Christian life is one of going through the motions... Checking off the boxes, mailing in the check, doing what you're supposed to do, but it all seems like this sort of dry routine, then maybe what we're actually missing is this sort of life-giving encounter with Jesus that leads us to worship. And I'm not saying that like your task for the day is to go climb a mountain and hope that you meet Jesus and Elijah and Moses on top of the mountain there. But what Jesus is journeying to to Jerusalem to do, to die on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven, that's somehow got to become big and rich to your heart, precious to your heart. The love of Christ for you has got to be more than just a phrase that you hear tossed around a church. Uh, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That sounds pretty cool. I mean, do you know that? Do you have a, this deep sense in your heart of the love of God for you that surpasses knowledge, as, as, as Paul would put it? Are you filled with the, the fullness of God? Where, where in the world would you even get that? 
Where would we go to look for that? How would we achieve that? Well, for one thing, Paul here knows that he's praying for the believers in the church at Ephesus that they would experience this. And so we, we ought to pray this way for one another. Not just that we would, you would be healthy and wealthy and successful and, and all the things that we, that we pray for one another. But pray that we would know the love of Christ. Pray for one another that we would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. That we would worship. That we would see Jesus in such a way that, that we would be filled with this need to worship. Uh, but that's not all. We pray for one another. But I think that there's a couple of hints in this text that point us to what we need to do if we're going to have this kind of life-changing experience of who God is. Uh, first of all, uh, God, as He speaks from the cloud, tells the disciples to do what? What's his, he says, listen to Him. Listen to Him. And then in the, the, the end of the, the second section of text that we read, the disciples are like, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says, this can only be cast out by prayer. By prayer. And so the disciples are told, as they journey to the cross, to listen to Jesus. And then they're told when they encounter difficulties in ministry, that they need to make sure that they are praying. Listen to Jesus. Pray. Talk to Jesus. That sounds an awful lot like a conversation to me. Listen to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. That sounds a lot like a relationship with somebody that they're being called to enter into. The way that you and I get this sense of the glory and majesty of God is by actually having a relationship with Him and spending time with Him. But this isn't a relationship like we have among peers. This is like a four-year-old getting getting to meet Cam Newton. Or like the Spartanburg High football players get to hang out with the Carolina Panthers. There's very much an inferior and there's a superior. But you have this privilege of being brought into this relationship with the one who is infinitely greater and more glorious than you and I are. What does that mean practically? What does that mean practically? How do I listen to Jesus? I listen in His Word. This is where God speaks to us. The Bible tells us that God puts His Word into the mouths of the prophets who then write these words down and so that we have God's words, even though these prophets are long gone, long gone. We have these prophets who speak to us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that God's word is living and active and powerful. It's not just letters on the page. It's where we hear God speaking to us. This is where we meet God. This is where God talks to us. And this is where we learn to talk to God. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that we all kind of have this illusion because we have no memory of learning how to talk that we somehow just figured it out on our own. Uh, But he says that's not true, is it? When we were born, language was spoken to us. We were surrounded with language being spoken. We were plunged into this sea of language. So he says that all of our language is actually answering language. That we're speaking back because we've first been spoken to. And he says we, we need to recognize the overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayers. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says our prayers should rise out of immersion in Scripture. 
Scripture is where God speaks to us and where we then in turn learn how to talk back, to speak to God. If you can't go back to the concert, I'm not going to get to see him again. What do you do? You download the album. You listen to the song. You, you learn the lyrics. You learn how to sing. If you can't get back to the Mount of Transfiguration, what, what do you do? Because God hasn't promised that he's going to show up and, and meet with us like that. But he has promised to meet with us in his word. He has promised in Romans 8 that there will be times as we meditate on who he is in his word that the Spirit will testify to us that we are the very children of God, that the Spirit will bring about this reassurance of God's love and that we are His children. As we pray and meditate on the Word, Jesus in the Word. I want to read this passage. Um, it's from Tim Keller's book on prayer. Uh, and this is kind of a different sound, sounding kind of passage for Presbyterians. So... Uh, maybe you'll enjoy it. Maybe you won't. Uh, but, but, but here's what he writes. Blaise Pascal was a Christian believer and philosopher and one of the great minds of history. When he died, it was discovered that he had sewn into the inner lining of his coat the description of an experience he had had one night. It read, in the year 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past ten in the evening until half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. Pascal was not talking about a sight of literal flames, but of an experience of the presence of God, what fire in the Bible so often represents. He had believed in God, but when he had said he had met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of the philosophers, he now he meant he now knew in the heart what he had known in the abstract another last famous example is Dwight L. Moody a prominent Chicago minister and evangelist in the eight night in the late 19th century <clears throat> he wrote <clears throat> excuse me one day in the city of New York oh what a day I cannot describe it I seldom refer to it it is almost too sacred an experience to name I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. It wasn't that Moody was not a Christian before, that he had never known Christ's love and presence. Perhaps we could say that the objective reality of who he was in Christ and the inward subjective experience came together for a moment he lived as the person he actually was. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go, and if you don't have an experience exactly like that, then, then you know, you're not going to be able to be a good Christian. I am saying you need to have more than just information about God. You need to have more than just information about God. We need our hearts and our affections engaged. We need to actually worship. Uh, the scripture says that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. What do you like? It says a lot about what we worship. How did, how did Kayla Mueller do, how was she able to do what she did? She had experienced, I believe, worship. She experienced the love and the glory of Jesus. And it was more real to her than comfort. It was more real to her than any security she could have in this life. If we're going to have a realness to our walk, if we're going to be authentic, 
we have to experience this sense of worship. This, this stuff we talk about every week has to move from our heads and it has to be in our hearts as well. Well, it's what we need. It's how we get it. But now I want to talk about what it really looks like. All right, I want to be real for a minute. Because this all sounds really nice, right? Um, the reality is, is that we, like the disciples, maybe we won't have that type, type of mountaintop experience, but we'll have these mountaintop experiences in the Christian life where the love of God is more real to us. But then we'll be thrown into the chaos that we see in the second section of what we read this morning. Battling evil and sin and struggling, we'll feel much more like the man whose son was demon-possessed than we do like Peter and James and John on the mountain. And so what do we do when we're in the midst of all that? I think what this text is telling us to do is in those moments, you have to get real with Jesus, which is what this man does. He says, and these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief, because that's where we live so often. Yeah, I long for us to have more of these mountaintop experiences, but this is where we so often live every day. We do believe, but this evil around us and this difficulty that we're going through and the things that we struggle with seems so much more real in the moment than the experience of God's love that I had, oh, I can't even remember when now. I was listening to uh, Malcolm Gladwell this week. You should listen to his podcast, Revisionist History. It's very interesting. But he was talking about the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And he was basically talking about how some musicians have kind of these moments of inspiration. And they said, well, how long did it take you to write that song? And they're like, about 15 minutes. And it's like the greatest song you've ever heard. But Leonard Cohen, it took him years to write this song and he kept fiddling with it and other people fiddled with it and one guy that was messing with it had to die for people even to care about the song again and then Leonard Cohen picks it back up and finally it turned into the song it became over years and years finally you get the final beautiful product after all of these years of struggle and I I think about this guy spending years and years working on that one song and how much of a slog that would be, how how worn out you would feel. So you you hear me this morning talking about this wonderful worship experience of God, but what your life feels like, what your walk with Jesus feels like, is like Leonard Cohen trying to write Hallelujah. And you're you're just slogging through it. You're just trying to make make it through and it's wearing you out and you're having to trust Jesus with your children and your finances and your life and your health and you know you ought to be charged up on Jesus worship juice and and take suffering by the horns and 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 walk all over it in the name of Jesus but your real prayer is I believe help my unbelief I believe help my unbelief me too. Me too. And that's okay. That's okay because that's what gets you into Jesus' presence. Not, hey, Jesus, look how good a worshiper I am. It's, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm trying to believe, but I'm weak 
and I'm helpless. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you're a good Savior. I believe you're working all things for my good. I believe you're making a beautiful song out of my life. I just know it's taking a really long time and not going the way I want it to. But I have a hard time really feeling all of that in here some days. I believe. Help my unbelief. Can can we pray that for each other? that, That Jesus would change our unbelief into belief and that more and more we would have a sense of his glory and his love for each one of us. Well, how did Kayla Mueller do what she did? I, I was just reading a story that this morning actually of a, a man who said he went on a bike packing trip and I never actually heard that word before. But I guess it's like backpacking, but you're riding a bike. And uh, he was on this trip, and he got caught in a really bad thunderstorm. And he goes into a grocery store, and he's kind of riding it out. And this teenager comes up to him and says, Hey, the weather's going to be bad for a while. Would you like to spend the night at our house? And he's like, Yeah, that would, that would be great. And then a couple minutes later, an older man comes up, and he says, Hey, we, we'd love to have you spend the night at our house if you'd like to. And he said, No, that, that's all right. I've already, somebody's already asked me. And then a couple of minutes later, they both walk up together. It was father and son, and they had both come and asked him the exact same thing. This teenager had learned hospitality from his father, from being with his father. How did Kayla Mueller endure suffering? How did she lay down her life for others? I'm sure she had many moments of, I believe, help my unbelief. But I'm also pretty sure that she learned to live that way by spending time with someone who came for the stated purpose of giving up his life for others. And that those years spent with him shaped who she was and how she lived in that furnace of affliction. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Uh, We want to experience more of you, uh, to know your glory and to know your presence and love. Uh, Father, honestly, sometimes we we actually don't want that. (laughs) We we, we run after other idols. So I, I pray that you would be more and more attractive to us so that we would desire that, uh, that we would want more of you, that we would want to love you. Uh, that you would help us in changes. Help us to pray for each other. Uh, Help us to know that we are loved by you. Help us in the midst of our unbelief to believe. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.